Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Uh, I feel like I have a few explanations to make. Um, several people came up to me this morning and said they were surprised to see me, and I do have an explanation for that. Uh, Joshua mentioned earlier in the service that my wife and I just had a baby on Thursday morning. Uh, everyone's very happy. Everyone's very healthy. Everyone's in good shape. Um, but a few explanations are in order. Uh, number one, the reason I'm preaching is that I had prepared my sermon in advance. So the sermon was done Wednesday afternoon. Olivia went into labor on Wednesday evening. There's no sense in not preaching a sermon that's already prepared, right? So that's part of why I'm up here. I should also add that Olivia gave me her blessing. Uh, she was okay with the fact that I was hoping to not miss a Sunday morning. I'll miss some other stuff in the next week or two that I would normally do, but I was trying not to miss a Sunday morning. And then I should also add that the elders did not force me to be here and preach. Uh, they had backup plans in order. There were other people prepared to preach if needed. I just want you to know that our elders are not the cruel Egyptian taskmasters that we've been reading about in the book of Exodus. Uh, so just so you know, you need to know all that stuff. But... As we move ahead in the book of Exodus, the stage has been set for the rest of the story. The Israelites have cried out to God for deliverance from Egyptian slavery, and God heard their cries. And despite Moses' fear, doubt, insecurity, and even sin, God has called him to lead the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. God has told Moses what to say and what to expect in response. God gave Moses miraculous signs to perform in front of the Israelites and in front of Pharaoh, and God reunited Moses with his brother Aaron. And at the end of chapter 4, the Israelites believed God's words and accepted Moses' leadership. Everything's going great so far. So as we begin chapter 5, there's really only one thing left to accomplish, and that is for Moses to confront Pharaoh. But at this point, I mean, what could go wrong? It's in the bag, isn't it? Moses has God's mighty hand behind him. He already knows how the story will end. Now Moses simply needs to execute the plan God gave him. Moses is called to trust and obey. And that should all be pretty easy, shouldn't it? It should be like shooting fish in a barrel, right? Well, let's see what happens in Exodus chapter 5. So open up to Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, and your grace to us. Again, we throw these words around in churches, goodness and mercy and grace and kindness, but these are not just vague, nebulous sensations or forces or feelings, but these are attributes of who you are. When we talk about your grace, we're saying that you are gracious to us. When we talk about your kindness, we're talking saying that you are kind to us. When we talk about your mercy, we're saying that you are merciful. This is who you are, and for that we glorify you, and we praise you, and we love you, and we worship you. 
And Father, your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your grace are shown so clearly throughout Scripture, through books like Exodus all the way to the end, especially through the revelation of the cross. We see your kindness and your mercy and your grace in action. And Father, we see these attributes in action in our everyday lives as well. We see it when we bring a new baby into the world and hear his cries and see the blessings of new life. But we can even see your kindness and your mercy and your grace in the tough times, in the valleys, in the darkness, in the shadow of death. And so, Father, remind us of that day in and day out. Remind us of that week in and week out. And remind us of that as we read your word today, that when we read your word, this is not just a subject to be studied These are not just stories to be known, but this is your revelation of yourself to us. And Father, may we respond in the proper way, with awe and praise and love. Again, Lord, thank you for Christ who brings us together this morning to read from your word and worship you. Thank you for these people, both new faces and old faces. Thank you for this place and thank you for this time. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to start reading in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat yourself like this? 
No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But Pharaoh said, you are idle. You are idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So, to say that Moses' first meeting with Pharaoh didn't exactly go well is kind of an understatement, isn't it? Speaking on God's behalf, Moses and Aaron made a simple request of Pharaoh. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. That's it. Moses didn't come right out and say from the very get-go, Hey, Pharaoh, you're going to permanently free your entire Israelite labor force right now. And as we leave, your people are going to give us silver, gold, jewelry, and clothing. And oh yeah, one more thing, if you don't listen, God is going to unleash a string of plagues upon your nation that will decimate your people, your environment, and your economy, and the last one will result in the death of your firstborn son. Moses does not come right out and say that. He starts with a somewhat vague relatively easy to swallow request of Pharaoh. Let us go have a feast in the wilderness. He doesn't say anything either way about the Israelites returning. The three days journey comment likely refers to the time it would take the Israelites to get there, not the amount of time they'd be gone. But even that short, simple request is met with a harsh, combative and irreverent response from Pharaoh. Before a single plague has been seen in Egypt, we are already seeing just how hard-hearted Pharaoh really is. When Pharaoh says in verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He's not asking that question honestly or innocently. He's asking it sarcastically and arrogantly. Why would I want to listen to him? Pharaoh's making it clear that he doesn't care about the God Moses claims to represent, and he has no desire to learn anything else about him. He doesn't take Moses seriously, doesn't take Moses' God seriously, and he writes the Israelites off as lazy. So Pharaoh's first response to Moses and Aaron could be summed up in two words. Get lost. Get lost. Now, as if that first meeting wasn't already bad enough, Pharaoh then proceeds to make life even harder on the Israelites 
than it already was. The heavy burdens get heavier. The ruthless taskmasters get even more ruthless. The hard service is harder. Their already bitter lives are made that much more bitter. The Israelites are forced to find their own straw for the bricks they make, if they can find any at all. Straw was used to reinforce Egyptian bricks, to make them stronger, more durable. So these new bricks that the Israelites were making were likely of poorer quality. And you can imagine that this new policy would slow down the Israelites' brick production. So fewer were being made. But Pharaoh seemed less concerned about the Israelites' operating efficiency, less concerned about the quality of bricks, less concerned about their production numbers, and more concerned with punishing them, more concerned with oppressing them, more concerned with making their lives miserable. The cruelty is the point. Pharaoh is just that hard-hearted. And as a result of this disastrous first meeting, the Israelites turn on Moses and Aaron. The only thing they've accomplished since they came back to Egypt is to make everything worse. The Israelites who welcomed them at the end of chapter 4 curse them in chapter 5. So Moses complains to God. He accuses God of having done evil to the Israelites and wonders why in the world he ever sent him there to begin with. It appears that Moses' lack of faith from chapters 3 and 4 hasn't gone away in chapter 5. Now you can understand how this first meeting with Pharaoh could be pretty jarring to Moses. But then again, if you read the story, God did warn him about this. In Exodus 3, verses 19 and 20, God says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Again, God warned Moses about this. And assuming that Moses was paying attention to those words, he shouldn't be totally surprised by Pharaoh's gruff response. It's true that God made it clear that his purposes would be accomplished, that Pharaoh could not thwart his people's deliverance. But God also made it clear that it would take more than just one meeting, more than just one conversation. But perhaps Moses was caught off guard by just how hard-hearted Pharaoh actually was. And God never said anything about the Israelites' oppression getting even worse before it would ever get any better. And Moses may not have expected the Israelites to so quickly abandon him, to so quickly turn on him. You put it all together and Moses is angry. He's discouraged. But worst of all, he feels that God has not kept his word, that God has let him down, that God has betrayed and misled him and his people. 
Have you ever felt the same way? Have you ever felt that way? Have you found yourself in a situation, something that you may have even believed to be a calling from God? And in that situation, you're attempting to do everything the way God wants you to do it. You're trusting him, you're listening to him, you're obeying him, you're worshiping him, you're waiting for him to fulfill his word, and yet you're starting to feel like God is letting you down. Now, you didn't expect a cakewalk. You're biblically informed enough to know that sometimes God works in mysterious ways. Sometimes God works according to his timing and not yours. And you know that sometimes God will allow us to experience hardships sufferings, and obstacles. You are not naive about that. You never expected God to put everything on a silver platter for you. You're more reasonable than that. But you didn't expect this. But for now, let's go back to our text. So God, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to apologize to Moses for putting him in this position? Are you going to accelerate the plan and speed up the deliverance so that things will go a little bit more smoothly? Or are you going to come up with an entirely new plan? One that will work a little bit better than this one has so far. Well, God isn't going to do any of those things. God does something better. God gives the angry, discouraged, and disappointed Moses what he actually needs. And we see that in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. If you've been here the past few weeks and thought those verses sounded familiar, 
you're correct. That's because in most of them, God basically says the same things he's already said. God says the same things in chapter 6 that he said in chapter 3. The same things in chapter 6 that he said in chapter 4. That's how God responds to Moses' complaint. He simply reaffirms the promise he's already made. He knows Moses is frustrated. He knows he's worried. He knows he's disappointed that the first meeting with Pharaoh didn't go the way he hoped it would. He knows Moses is shocked with the way the Israelites have turned on him so quickly. But God reminds Moses that he is still God. Pharaoh is still no match for him. He has not forgotten about the people's sufferings. He will bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And Moses is still called to be his messenger. God reassures Moses that no matter how bad things might look after that first meeting, his plan hasn't changed. Nothing that happened in Exodus 5, Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, bricks without straw, the Israelites' rejection of Moses, none of that has negated, none of that has undermined God's promises. God has not been surprised by any of it. And his plan has not been thrown off course. And Moses is still called to trust and is still called to obey. When life, or even more specifically, something you were fully convinced was God's plan and you had good reason for thinking it. When it doesn't go the way you thought it would, you don't necessarily need to hear something new. You don't really need to hear something different. You need to hear something old. You need to be reminded of something you already know. You need to be reminded of something that you already heard. Something you already believed at one time, even if you're having a more difficult time believing it now. In Moses' case, he needed to hear God's promises to free his people once again. He needed to hear that God is still God and that God still has this whole situation with the Israelites and Egypt and Pharaoh and the promised land all under control. Moses needed to hear that he is still called by God, even though the Israelites aren't so convinced. And as Christians, the message that we need to hear time and time again through the ups and downs and twists and turns of life is the gospel. We need to be reminded over and over and over again that no matter what our circumstances may be, God isn't surprised by any of it. And none of it negates, none of it undermines what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We see a perfect summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul says there, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, 
and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Amidst all the moral, spiritual, and relational chaos of the church in Corinth, Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians something new. He reminds them of something old. He gives them the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He took the penalty that we deserved, the wrath of God upon himself on the cross, even though he is perfectly sinless, in order that we might be declared righteous by God and reconciled to God. And Jesus didn't just die. He died for our sins. A price had to be paid for our rebellion, and Christ in his perfect humanity and divinity, is the only one qualified to pay it. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him, referring to Christ, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. As Zach preached from this passage a few weeks ago, Jesus didn't pass out. He didn't faint. He died. He was put in a tomb. He was buried. But Jesus' death and burial wasn't a defeat. It's through Jesus' death and burial that death, and the one who brought it with him, is defeated. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, again referring to Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. In the incarnation, Christ took on flesh and blood, just like you and just like me. He died just like we do. But it's through his death that death is defeated. It's through his death that the devil loses. It's through his death that we no longer have to fear our own death the way we once did. Christ died for our sins and he was buried. He was raised on the third day. In this same chapter, Paul stresses that the risen Christ appeared to hundreds of of witnesses. He argues that if Christ wasn't raised, Christians are without hope. Really, we're pathetic. He argues that because Christ was raised, one day we will be raised. He says that because Christ's body was made new, one day our bodies will be made new. In Matthew 28, the chief priests were so desperate to hide the truth of Christ's resurrection that they paid Roman soldiers to start a conspiracy theory that Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples. Jesus' most bitter opponents recognized the significance of his resurrection, and so should we. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and this is all according to the scriptures. God's word 
His promises do not fail. That's true whether you're Moses, who expected that first meeting with Pharaoh to go a little bit differently. That's true if you're Peter, who could not even entertain the notion that Jesus would be betrayed and crucified. And God hasn't lost control when our jobs, our families, our health, our kids, or our churches don't fare as well as we hoped they would. Regardless of your circumstances, the gospel is still true. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. God hadn't lost control when Pharaoh demanded that the Israelites make bricks without straw. And God hadn't lost control when Pilate turned Jesus over to the bloodthirsty crowds. And God has not lost control in the midst of whatever it is that you're facing at this moment. Again, when you're feeling the way Moses felt, discouraged, disappointed, hopeless, or even wondering if God may have let you down, you don't need to hear something new. You need to hear something old. You need to be reminded of God's power, reminded of God's goodness, reminded of his sovereignty, reminded of his promises, and reminded of your calling to trust and obey. In other words, you need the gospel. The old story that's been passed down to us by Paul and the rest of the apostles and the Christians in whose footsteps we follow. The one which we've received, in which we stand, and by which we are being saved. You need to know that though things may look bleak now, even though it may appear as though God has gone back on his word, he's failed to fulfill his end of the deal, he's lost control entirely. He hasn't. He's still in charge. The end of the story remains the same. You are still called, and the gospel is still true. Exodus 6 ends with a genealogy. It's a long list of names. And in this case, that long list of names gives us Moses and Aaron's family tree. And we said before that it's easy to overlook genealogies in the Bible. Again, it's just a list of names. What's really there for you? But in Scripture, genealogies are there for a reason. The author has a specific agenda for including it where he does and how he does. The genealogy in Exodus 6 appears to be there to establish that Moses and Aaron were Levites, the tribe of Israel that would soon be responsible for serving as priests over God's people once they get out of Egypt. And priests had heavy responsibilities. They represented God to his people and vice versa. They offered sacrifices to God for the people's sins. And they were the people's primary spiritual shepherds. But today I would remind you that the gospel we Christians believe identifies Christ as our great high priest. That's the old story we need to come back to time and time again. That is the gospel. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, God tells the people that one day a new prophet like Moses would arise. Now, in the immediate context, Joshua would seem to be the obvious fulfillment of that prophecy. He's the one who took over for Moses when Moses died. 
But in the long term, Deuteronomy 18 is understood to be referring to Christ. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 tells us that Christ is our high priest. But it also tells us that he's not just like Moses. He's better than Moses. The book goes on to tell us that Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses and was tempted as we are and yet was without sin. It tells us that Christ is the only priest we'll ever need because he offered up himself as the sufficient sacrifice for our sins once and for all. It tells us that because of him, we are free to draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts and bodies washed clean. It's an old story. It's one that you may have heard before. But sometimes when everything around you seems to be falling apart, you don't need something new. You need something old. You need to be reminded of something you already heard. You need to be reminded of something you've already believed. In Moses' case, it was God's plan to defeat Pharaoh and save the Israelites. And in our case, it's the gospel. How Christ has defeated sin and saved us, no matter how bad things might look right now. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for these reminders that you give us. Again, we live in a world where things are unsteady and unpredictable and scary and disorienting but no matter what it is that we face day in and day out regardless of what sufferings and hardships and pains and failures and unexpected obstacles are put into our way the gospel is still true that old story remains the same the ending remains the same We have hope not just in this life in you, but we have hope in the next life as well. Remind us of that day in and day out. No matter what we're facing, no matter what our circumstances might be, when things go exactly the way we hoped they would, when we feel like your blessings are all around us, or when we feel like things are spiraling out of control, when we feel disappointed and discouraged and frustrated and without hope, Father, remind us that the gospel is still true. That old story that we've believed still gives us hope. Your promises remain the same. Father, we love you. We worship you. We honor you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.